This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Happy New Year. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Zneimer. With 2020 fresh in our rearview mirror, have you made any New Year's resolutions? Finding it hard? You'll hear from one psychology professor who'll talk about why that is, also how you should go about making yours. And New Year, New Day means many Canadians will be deciding when to start collecting their CPP. Contribution rates rose slightly on New Year's Day, incidentally. An actuary will dive into those numbers later on in the show. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Paying down debt is Canadians' top financial goal heading into the new year, just as it's been for the past 11 years. The annual poll by CIBC finds many saying they took on more debt this year to cover day-to-day expenses and make up for a loss of income during the pandemic. Only one quarter believe their financial situation will improve in 2021, down from a third last year. As we begin a new one, the Angus Reid Institute has released its top 10 news stories of last year, and not surprisingly, at number one is COVID-19. The Wee Charity scandal comes in at number two. Also on the minds of Canadians in 2020, the Wet'suwet'en protests, the federal assault weapons ban, at number five, provincial elections, there were three, and the incumbents returned to power in B.C., Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick. Other headline-making stories, the Iran plane crash, Joe Biden's presidential victory, the royals briefly coming to Canada, and at number nine, the two Michaels, Kovrig and Spaver, who've now been detained in China for more than two years. Rounding out the top ten, policing perspectives. As 2020 was a tumultuous year for those in law enforcement and those pushing for reforms to a justice system on both sides of the border. The professor and Mary Ann, here until again. Don Wells, who played the wholesome Mary Ann among a misfit band of shipwrecked castaways on the 1960s TV sitcom Gilligan's Island, has died of causes related to COVID-19. She was 82. There's so much more to Dawn Wells than the Gilligan's Island character that brought her fame, according to her publicist. Besides TV, film, and stage acting credits, she was also a teacher and motivational speaker. Tina Louise, 86, who played Ginger, the movie star, is the last surviving member of the cast. Handwriting experts take note. North Carolina is looking for help in transcribing hundreds of old records with handwriting that one expert described as colonial chicken scratch. The state has put the records, some dating back 300 years, on a website. 
and volunteers can take a stab at deciphering what they say. Many of the documents, written in outdated style with large swirls and long tails, are court records from before the Revolutionary War. There are also slave trade documents, as well as treaties with Native Americans. The site offers a tutorial on how to decode the writings. If you'd like to see the documents, just Google Transcribe NC. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. So, what are your resolutions for 2021? Do they include the usual ones, eating better, exercising more, or maybe keeping up your physical fitness regimen? A lot of Canadians, of course, walked more than they probably ever have in the past year. But if you're stuck in making resolutions, I spoke to University of Regina psychology professor Catherine Arbuthnot and began by asking just how difficult it is to make them for this year. I think it's it's very difficult, the number one. And number two, we we can make them, but we're going to have a really hard time following through on them because for two reasons. One is because we're in a really difficult time and just getting through the day is often difficult. And secondly, we're not really sure when all of this is over and we're all safely vaccinated, what the world's going to come back as. How should those who are into making resolutions, go about it then this year? I I think probably our best use of the kind of reflection and aspirational thought that resolutions require is to think about how how what do we need to um, get ourselves healthily through the rest of the pandemic. One of the big concerns is that there's going to be a second mental health crisis following the pandemic crisis because people are just barely coping without lots of things that we need. And so we, we really have to put our thought to kind of keeping ourselves as, as well and as healthy as possible to flatten that mental health curve. As you point out, the uncertainty, is that the biggest factor weighing on people in terms of trying to make resolutions, trying to get through the day, trying to get through the week, just trying to get through it? Right. It, it, it is a, a very big one that, that we don't know. I mean, even though we can now see the end of the tunnel, it's several months down the road. We don't know when we personally will get out of it. And when everybody will be vaccinated, so the world can mostly get out of it. So we're very uncertain. Um, but the other thing is that um, uh, it, it's a very difficult time. We're all tired of doing this already. Plus, we've still got you know high case numbers, and now we've got this more contagious virus um, wafting about. So we're going to have to be even better and more careful, and we're going to have to take even better care of ourselves, I think, to to remain reasonably healthy to the end. So does that mean any resolutions should be more short-term than usual? Yes, I, I think they they should be. Like, what what do I need to kind of get myself through the next month or week 
um, so that I can see myself being healthy when this is finally all over. Now, what if one just can't help but think about long-term goals? You say those could be based on three things. What are they? Yeah, the three things are, um, what have I already changed um, to cope with the pandemic that I kind of like? Um, You know, maybe I'm uh, exercising in a different way, or maybe I'm listening to music more or something like that. So there might be some things that I want to just keep in my post-pandemic life. Uh, the second one is, um, what, are, what are the things that I've discovered I really, really miss? Um, because though, what's the first things I'm going to do as soon as this pandemic's over? Because those are the things that I'll definitely want to work to make sure are still in the world and in my life um, uh, when we get through this. And then the third thing is um, we've had a lot of time to reflect. The world has been quite different than the one we're used to. So most of us have had the odd conversation or thought about, well, if I was in charge of the world, here's how I would build it back better um, when the pandemic is over. What advice of yours have you taken or do you plan to take? I do have a list of things that I'm going to keep from from um, how I the advice I took basically from the psychiatrists and pundits at the beginning of the pandemic about how to best keep ourselves stable about this. Um, I I and my friends have really entertained ourselves quite a bit by talking about the the cracks that the pandemic has revealed in our society and what we might do to improve inequity and um, uh, value uh, essential workers better than we currently do, etc. So we're thinking about what sorts of things we might do just in our local neighborhoods to achieve those sorts of things when we can. The uncertainty, as you pointed out right at the beginning, and you mentioned about the light at the end of the tunnel, which others have talked about. And I think the thing that makes it difficult, you can see the light. It's just not knowing how long it's going to take to get there. That's right. And in some ways, you know, that that makes it even harder. Um, before the vaccines were available, we knew it was going to end. We just didn't know when. It could have been years because other plagues have lasted that long. Well, now we know it's going to happen by certainly by this time next year. Um, and and um, it's it's like uh, you can see it coming and you want it right now. So it, it takes even a little bit more patience and kindness to get ourselves to hold on. University of Regina psychology professor, Dr. Catherine Arbuthnot. Thank you. You're most welcome. And a happy new year to you and yours. You too. And good resolutions. That was University of Regina psychology professor, Catherine Arbuthnot. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, helping you decide if this is the year you should start collecting CPP. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. 
Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Have you decided when to start collecting your Canada Pension Plan? A thousand Canadians make that decision every day, and most begin taking CPP early, at the age of 60. But if you can afford it, delaying until age 70 means an extra $100,000 over the course of your retirement. Libby Snymer spoke to actuary Bonnie Jean McDonald, who crunched the numbers in a paper for Ryerson University's National Institute on Aging. I ran some pretty simple calculations, and on average, Canadians will actually lose out on over $100,000 if they take their CPP at 60 instead of 70. Now, you decided to turn it on its head. Most people look at it, how much will I gain by delaying? And you decided to show show how much they would lose if they didn't. Why is that? Well, that's exactly it. So there's a people really don't like the idea they're losing out on money. It's kind of the behavioral economists will call it a loss aversion. And the other reason why I did it this way is that up until now, the way that people have been looking at this question is to say, well, if I take CPP at 70 and I die, how much money will I be losing over those few years? And this is really understandable because what happens is, you know, the human brain is really meant to kind of process short-term problems. And retirement is such a unique situation where we're kind of made to think so far in advance. I think one of the most important parts of this research and this study and and the way I've presented the results is really to help Canadians to now shift the narrative around retirement to realize that the real risk of retirement is that uh, they will live well into their 90s and 100s and they won't be prepared for it. We buy car insurance, even though we know we're going to be losing some premiums because we know if something were to happen, we're protected. And if you don't buy car insurance, you're probably not going to drive your car. You're not going to be very comfortable with it. So the exact same thing with retirement. You're going to maybe lose a little bit of money in the short term, but the risk isn't that you're going to die in the next 10 years because that's very unlikely. Uh, 75% of Canadians do live well past age 80. So the risk is that you're going to live uh, quite a bit longer and you won't, and we won't have this kind of pension income that we need when we need it most, which is, again, at these advanced ages. Some people obviously need the money, but for a lot of people, it just get, if they're still working at that age, it's just getting clawed back anyway. Precisely. So in this research, uh, I've known a lot about the CPP. I understand that it's really the uh, best deal in town. If you were to take the same money and try to go buy an annuity, you'd get half the pension income. So delaying your CPP, I've, I've long known, is just about uh, I mean, keep in mind, these adjustment factors haven't changed in 10 years, and interest rates are at rock-bottom um, numbers. And just that in and of itself tells us what a good deal CPP is. So it's always been a great deal. It's better deal today than ever before. Age 60 has been the highest take-up age of age of CPP um, for the last 10 years, and 95% of Canadians do take it before 65. Really? And, yeah. and how many people actually delay it? So 1% of Canadians take it at age 70. In today's age, uh, guaranteed income that lasts for your life is really expensive. And this is really just the best deal in town to kind of get more pension income well, protection. Okay. And anything else you want to tell us about this? 
Well, I think if anyone's interested, the research is available on the National Institute on Aging website. And uh, we're hoping to kind of come out with more. Um, myself and a co-author, we're writing a book on the topic because the academic analysis is great. It's great for financial professionals. But we really believe this is an untold story that's more important now than ever before. I mean, every year... Um, a thousand Canadians are making the decision every single day about taking up their CPP. And I fundamentally believe it's, it's one of the simplest solutions to help improve retirement financial security in Canada because it really requires no changes. It just requires a better uh, education and a better way to express this benefit to Canadians themselves. Happy New Year and thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Actuary Bonnie Jean McDonald. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick, and for Libby Snymer, thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. And again, Happy New Year. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.